Amen. Praise be to God for the spirit that he gives us by which he makes us to be his sanctuary. Friends, I tell people, those who serve our, um, our services in, in being service leaders, I give them one very specific instruction, that they should not welcome you to the Park Hills Baptist Church. And we don't come to the church, that we are the church. We come to the public gathering of the church because the Spirit makes us to be His sanctuary. It's not the building. It's not the walls. It's not this property that is the church. It's the people. It's you. It's us together. And Therefore, when we gather together, um, we praise God that He is among His people. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Titus. I encourage you to open your Bibles to uh, the book of Titus. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to get a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 998. As you turn there, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't own an ESV Bible, we would love for you to have one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. We'd love for you to read it, take it home with you, and uh, enjoy it. We pray that God's Spirit will bless you through the reading uh, of His Word. Friends, uh, let's work through the book of Titus. We'll be reading uh, from verse 5 to verse 9. We have been reading this passage now for a number of weeks. And uh, I can tell you this, it is not the last time today that we'll read it either. Here's the Word of the Lord. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. Would you bow with me, asking the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word for our hearts. Father, thank you that you give us instructions in your word about your church. Thank you that you tell us who should lead your church. Father, we pray that as we look at this passage, we pray that you might help us understand these qualifications and help, help us, O oh Lord, as a congregation to aspire to have more and more of our members live in this way so that as you might call some of our men to be elders and shepherds over us, that we as a congregation might know how to recognize them, how to identify them, how to affirm them and trust them. We pray that you would speak to our hearts so that your name would be glorified in our lives and in our congregation. 
In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We have been looking for the last few sermons through this particular series um, at the qualifications for elders. Particularly, this is the, the fourth sermon on qualifications for elders. Friends, it's amazing that in a letter like this, written to Titus, the first section of the letter, after the introduction and in the, 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 the uh, greeting is being um, clear, after the introduction is over, the first segment, the first section of the letter, Paul addresses qualifications about elders. It's as if Paul tells Titus to set the, the churches in order, and the starting point of setting churches in order is to get biblical leaders, and then Paul gives instructions about who these leaders, who these elders ought to be, and these instructions are not only for Titus to know, but for churches, the churches in Crete to know, so they might know who should be considered for the role of elders or overseers or the pastoral office. Last week, we considered and looked closely at the one-word qualifications of verse 7. One-word qualifications of verse 7. They are negative qualifications, meaning what not to be. And we looked at the qualification of, of being arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. In other words, if someone is any of these characteristics or has any of these characteristics, that person is not yet ready to be considered for the position and the responsibility of pastoral leadership. But Paul doesn't stop simply at giving us a list of what an elder should not be. In verse 8, he moves on to some positive qualifications. He gives us a list of six characteristics, again, one-word characteristics of what a person should be in order to be considered for this office. A man may keep himself off of the negative characteristics. But are the positive qualifications visible in his life? Can you, imagine, can you imagine a situation in which a church would say to a prospective elder or to a group of prospective elders, Brother, by God's grace, the negative qualifications are not visible in your life. We praise God for that. But there are some positive qualifications that are not yet very evident. And we want to encourage you to grow in these areas before we could nominate you for pastoral leadership. Friends, can you imagine a situation when a church would tell someone those words? I hope we would say those words if needed and necessary. But what are the positive qualifications that should be present in someone's life and without those positive qualifications being there and being visible, uh, we may not be able to yet affirm someone for this particular responsibility. 
Well, let's look at these six qualifications. By the way, these are not the only qualifications. Uh, there are some others in 1 Timothy 3, and we will see others next week in verse 9. But we're going to look today just at verse 8. And we're going to look at the six positive qualifications that Paul gives to Titus. An elder must be hospitable. Look at verse 8. Well, verse 7 and 8, he must not be arrogant or good-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. This word appears again, or this qualification appears again in, in the list that Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Therefore, an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Twice this qualification is given. Friends, it's amazing that in the list given to Titus, the qualification of hospitality appears the first, as the first in the positive list, in this one-word uh, list. A man who does not show signs of practicing hospitality is not yet ready for the pastoral leadership role. Wow! Before we look at hospitality and what it is, I want, us to, I want us to understand that the command to be hospitable is not just for elders, but for all Christians. Let me give you just a few verses in the Bible where hospitality is expected and commanded for all believers. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, the Apostle Peter says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Not only show it, but how to show it without grumbling. When describing the list of qualifications for widows in the church and who are the, the widows the church should support, uh, in 1 Timothy 5.10, Paul gives the following qualifications for who should be added to the church's list of widows. It's not just those whose husbands have died, but those who have had a reputation for good works if she had brought up children and has shown hospitality. Interesting that hospitality is a requirement for those widows who would be placed on a widow's list. In Romans chapter, 13, uh, chapter 12, verse 13, the passage we read earlier in our service, Paul says, to all of us, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do you see that the practice of hospitality is clearly commanded in Scripture for us, for Christians? And it's not simply because back then people lacked um, the ability or the, the, the option of having safe hotels when they traveled. There is much more about hospitality than simply meeting the needs of travelers. Friends, hospitality is an important expression of Christian love. It's an important expression 
of Christian love. To say that we love one another, but we never open our homes and our personal lives to one another. Oh, friends, that is a poor illustration of love. Hospitality also shows a compassion not just for the one another, but also for those who we may not know, for strangers. Now, I understand strangers can be of different kinds, especially in our world today, and especially in our own city. Uh, we don't, the bottom line is, though, is that we don't love only those who love us back. In hospitality, we don't just simply exchange favors of visiting each other. You invite me over? Oh, great. Now, I'll invite you over as well. It's not just that favor of exchanging entertaining evenings to one another. It's more than that. Being hospitable is a form of denying a me-centered way. We are saying, when we show hospitality, that our home is not just my private space. That my place is not just mine. It's, it's theirs for others as well. Hospitality is also a great venue for discipleship. We should not confuse hospitality with merely entertaining people with a meal or putting up a party. Now, it might involve that, but it's not merely that. There are people who love entertaining others. Uh, that's a wonderful uh, gift to have, but hospitality is more than just entertaining people. Rather, the home can be a great venue for mutual discipleship, for encouragement, for growth in grace, for prayer. So inviting someone over to talk to them about what's going on in their lives, to hear their burdens, to hear their struggles, to be willing to pray for one another. Hospitality can also be a great venue for evangelism. When we open our homes and invite neighbors to come over for a meal, when we invite co-workers or friends for a meal and open our homes to them. Friends, when we think about hospitality, a way to define it is that hospitality is not merely entertaining people. It's not merely having certain personality traits where you're just an outgoing person. Um, hospitality is not simply loving to have parties and people over. Hospitality is an intentional desire to reach out to others, opening our lives, opening our calendars, opening even our homes for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. Park Hills members, let me ask you this morning, what was the last time you had another fellow believer over at your place? Perhaps for a meal. Perhaps just for a dessert. Perhaps for a game night. Perhaps just to have something in the backyard, some s'mores, whatever you might consider. But when was the last time you had it? How often do you do this in a year? Has a year gone by and you've not had anyone over? And I'm not talking strangers. I'm talking fellow brothers and sisters. I have seen quite a few of our members, by God's grace, practice hospitality 
in some very encouraging ways among us. I, I'm so encouraged when there's, there are members who might prepare themselves in the weekend so they could invite someone over, even Sunday after the service. I know that takes time and preparation and, and forward planning. Or just inviting someone for a meal, either after the service on Sunday or, um, or throughout the week. Say, hey, let's get together for a meal. Let's, let's meet for coffee. Or let's just meet to talk. I'd love to know more about you. I'd love to know about your life, what you're going through. Friends, I am so pleased that God has a good number of us doing that actively. But for others among us, this might still be an uncharted territory. And it may still feel uncomfortable and, and a, a big deal. Friends, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage all of us, if this is you this morning, that you, this is an uncharted territory for you, this whole idea of hospitality. You don't know how to do it or, or where to start. Friends, um, come and talk to me. I'd love to have you over, and we can talk about hospitality and how, how easy it can be. Uh, don't worry about having an elaborate meal or large space. You don't need to have a big house to practice hospitality. All you need is a big heart. In our home group several months ago, um, we were working through a book, on, uh, called, through a book called the, Con- the Compelling Community. And uh, one of the examples in the book was about how um, in this particular church that the book was mentioning, the college students decided to invite the adult members of the church to their dorm and put together a ramen noodle party. (laughs) You don't need a big meal. You don't need fancy stuff. What you need is love. That's all you need. And even if you don't have your own space, a park, a coffee shop, somewhere. Just make yourself available. Reach out to someone else. And by the way, if you've ever told people, hey, let's get together for lunch, or let's get together sometime, but then you never follow up with them, do you know how discouraging and disappointing it is for someone to to hear that initiative, but there's no concrete plans to actually do it? Friends, I encourage you, make it a point to grow in the area of hospitality. While hospitality is a command for all Christians, the pastoral leaders of the church must be men who practice it. For one, shepherding cannot be done from a distance. I love the the words of Alexander Strauch, who said uh, in his book on biblical eldership, said, in my work as a pastor elder, I have found my home to be one of the most important tools I possess for reaching out and caring for people. Those called to lead God's church are first of all to be hospitable. Friends, I wonder if you've ever considered that lack of hospitality shows that someone is not yet ready to be an elder or a pastor. Interesting. So as we think about how do you know if someone is ready or qualified, to be a pastor or an elder, here's a few questions to consider. Who are the men who are interested to meet others at church, to reach out to visitors and members alike, and to invite them to lunch after the service? 
either whether in their home or out to lunch for, uh, at a restaurant? Or who are the people who are, who are interested to follow up and open up their lives to others and want to meet up with others for the sake of Christ? What about those who, or what about the idea of meeting with others during the week to get involved in their lives? Who are the, who are the men in our congregation who get together with others during the week, either for lunch or coffee? Um, it's a great way to connect with people. A great, great way to get to know those who visit us. Is a prospective elder using his home as a venue for ministry, either in hosting a small group or inviting people for a meal or for dessert or for game night or engage in personal and spiritual conversations? Again, Alexander Strauch said, an open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial serving spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfishness, lifeless, and loveless Christianity. So friends, an elder must be hospitable. First positive qualification that we must be looking for as we consider potential elders. A second qualification, positive qualification, is that an elder must be a lover of good. Look again at verse 7 and 8. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good. In the Greek language, this is just a one word. It speaks of, of one who loves what is good. But it doesn't stop simply at desires, or intentions, or affections. This qualification also relates to being ready to do good. Doing that which benefits others. To love doing good to others instead of being a lover of money instead of living of being a lover of privacy instead of being a lover of having influence elders are men who are lovers of good who are lovers of doing good so ask yourself here's a few questions to ask about this particular qualification does an elder candidate show inclinations of seeking to do good to others when he sees something that is not good, does he stay passive about it? Does he ignore it? Or is he concerned about it, concerned enough to address it? Whether he does it himself, whether he addresses it himself, or he gets others to help in addressing it, the bottom line is, is it evident to others that a man loves, loves to help others and to do them good? An elder must be a lover of good. A third qualification, and by the way, some of these qualifications are shorter than others. A third qualification is he must be self-controlled. Again, in verse 8, he must be self-controlled. Another way to put it, he must be in control of oneself. This qualification is repeated again in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul links together the following words. An overseer must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Friends, practicing self-control, not only in our own lives, but also in dealing with others and dealing with their situations. Part of the definition of self-control is being prudent and thoughtful. A similar word is used in Romans 12, 3, where Paul speaks about having 
a sober judgment. Same word, uh, same idea of, of being self-controlled, of having a sober judgment. In other words, being self-controlled involves both actions, what we do, how we live, but also it involves thoughts, how we think. So here's some questions to consider uh, about this qualification of being self-controlled. Is a man who is considered for eldership, is, is he able to control his emotions and his actions? Are there areas in a man's life where he is consistently showing lack of self-control or is he struggling with certain addictions or certain pattern of sinful action or certain pattern of sinful uh, thoughts or affections? Should we ask someone about it? Well, yes. We should ask a prospective elder, how is he doing in this area of self-control? How does he react in various situations? Observe him, how he reacts when things go well. Does he tend to become careless and lacking prudence? When things don't go well, does he tend to become emotionally unstable? Does he give easily into resentment? Does he give easily into fear or complaining? When things are difficult, or he has to deal with difficult people, is he able to endure evil? Is he able to endure false accusations? Is he able to show, a, a, to show sober judgment even when others act against him? Does a man show discretion and common sense in dealing with people and with their situations? Is he able to be discreet and sensible? Or is he causing more drama? than needed? Is he wavering and unstable in his judgments? Does he bounce from one idea to another? Or is he sober-minded, sober judgment in all situations? Is he always looking for the next new thing? Is he by his way of life earning the respect of others? Friends, these are questions we can ask and consider as we observe whether or not someone has this qualification of self-control. The next qualification, I'm going to actually tie two words together because they're so close to one another. The next two qualifications are that an elder must be upright and holy. Upright and holy. Let's look at the first of these. The word for upright is the word for righteous, dikaios. It refers not to the righteousness that God gives us, but it refers to the response that we bring back to God to live righteously before God. To be upright means to live in accordance with God's ways. Now, the same word is used for all believers um, in 1 John um, 3 7, 1 John says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Now, do you realize that here righteousness refers to our response back to God? It's not referring 
to the righteousness that God gives us, that God declares upon us. But this refers to our actions that are either righteous or unrighteous. We see an example of, of this description in Luke chapter 2, 25, when Simeon uh, is described in this way. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. We see the same example, uh, same word describing Job in Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. Friends, being upright and being righteous is something that we must do and are enabled by God's grace to do. All Christians are to live this way before God, to live in accordance with God's ways. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're here, first of all, we're so glad you're here. We want to make sure you understand that what makes us Christians is not that we start living righteously. Becoming righteous before God is something that we experience first and foremost by repenting of our sin and trusting and relying on Jesus to save us. When we respond to the gospel, when we respond to God's news of salvation, God bestows upon us His Holy Spirit, and through that living of His Holy Spirit in us, we are enabled to start living differently. But what makes us Christians is not that we start living righteously. Rather, it's because we have become Christians that we are now enabled to live righteously. Someone can live, quote, rightly in the eyes of society and yet not be right with God. Someone can live a moral life and yet not be righteous before God. Friends, it is by God's Spirit that we can be made new beings, born again by God's grace and enabled to live rightly before Him as a response of God's grace in our lives. If you'd like to know more about this gospel, this salvation that makes us right with God first and that afterwards enables us to live rightly, friends, if you'd like to know more about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Well, all Christians are enabled and called to live righteous and upright lives, elders must actually do it before being considered for the office. Elders must be people who do it. The next qualification is very close to being upright. It says upright and holy. Describing someone as holy has at least two dimensions. When we describe God as holy, we declare that He is perfect. He has no imperfections. In this sense, Revelation 15:4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. There's a sense of, of the meaning of the word holy, which only God can be holy. There is a, a perfection, an absolute perfection that that only God can, can have that word applied to himself in a righteous way. That definition of holy doesn't apply to us. We're not yet that. We hope to be. One day we will be. We're not that yet. And yet, the Bible 
has another way in which the word holy is used that is applied to God's people. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our society and even some religious people have come to be very suspicious of this word holy, especially when applied to Christians. To some people, this description as a holy people has come to be associated with those who pretend to be perfect or those who pretend to uh, have no imperfections in their lives and are perfect in their own eyes. Friends, I don't disagree that often people who have had a false understanding of holiness think that holiness is only what other people could see. So as long as we manage to appear holy to others, we think that we are holy or we think that we are fine. Holy people are not those who pretend they have no more sin in their lives, but those who continue to seek holiness and righteousness because we know that we continue to be tempted and sin and respond sinfully more often than we would like to. But the reality is that Scripture does describe God's people as a holy people who are marked by holiness. In 1 Peter 2.9, Christians are described as a holy nation. Thus, friends, pastoral leaders of a church must be people who are marked by holiness, who are holy. This means that a man's life shows, ought to show, what it looks like to be devoted to God, to be separated for God, to live a life pleasing to God. There's no area in his life where he is living in open disobedience or in intentional neglect or in foolish irresponsibility or foolish ignorance. You might wonder, why is it that Paul, Paul is using two words for upright and holy. Why is he using both, which seem to be going about the same truth, about the same principle? Is it perhaps because he wants to emphasize it? He wants to emphasize the importance that those who are called to be elders are men who show their holiness of life. Friends, perhaps among some of the most subtle dangers in a church is for a church to have leaders who are great managers, but who are weak in their pursuit of holiness. They might be people who have great vision and great vision casters, but might flirt with a lack of godliness. Os Guinness, in one of his books entitled Dining with a Devil, gives the illustration of a Japanese businessman who made the following observation. He said, uh, whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. What an indictment. What an indictment about the church in the West. About what it means to, to really be a church and what Christian leaders actually communicate. There's a reason why Paul commanded the elders in Ephesus to pay careful attention to yourselves. 
Before you take careful attention to the church, pay careful attention to yourselves, not just to the flock. Living uprightly and holy lives requires careful attention that we have on ourselves and over one another as elders. So here are some application questions about this particular qualification. Is an elder, a prospective elder, an example to you for a holy and righteous life? Don't simply ask, is he staying away from doing bad things? That's not good enough. We must ask positively, is he an example of godliness, of holiness, of righteousness? When we are around this person or, or around these individuals, are you encouraged and challenged to grow in holiness and righteousness? With the people closest to that person who know him best, do they see in him a man who pursues holiness? Not that he's without a flaw. Not that he's perfect, but that he fears God more than he fears choosing intentionally to sin or li live in, in neglect of righteousness. That he lives a life of ongoing repentance and desire for righteousness. Is he a man who treasures the pursuit of holiness? Or does he think lightly of it or even despises it? These are questions to ask before we consider someone for the office of elder. And the last qualification we want to look at this morning is an elder must be disciplined must be disciplined. This is the last uh, description in verse 8. This word refers to having one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control. This word goes very, is very similar and has some overlap with a qualification we, said, we saw earlier about self-control. Uh, this word is used, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul speaks about athletes. He says, every athlete exercises discipline or self-control in all things. And Paul uses that illustration to encourage Christians in our own Christian walk. Friends, but elders are people who actually do it, who are examples of doing it. Discipline goes hand-in-hand hand with self-control, but it's more than self-control. It's, it's more than just controlling our desires or actions. When someone lacks discipline, it causes a person to fail in accomplishing things, both in his own personal life and also in the responsibilities he has towards others. This failure to accomplish things in some situations could be because of external factors, but in some situations it could be because a person gets easily distracted or because simply he lacks discipline. Such a person might promise a lot, it has a pattern of delivering poorly. Someone may have a lot, lots of good intentions, but because he lacks discipline, he won't get much done. Lack of, of discipline in pastoral leadership can and might bring poor spiritual care for the church. But being disciplined is not just being disciplined with your life in general. It's first and foremost being disciplined in your spiritual disciplines, in your walk with the Lord. How is a man doing in pursuing discipline in his own spiritual life? In regularly reading God's Word, in prayer, in gathering with God's people regularly? Is he pursuing 
spiritual discipline for the sake of godliness in his own life. Paul told Timothy, train yourself for the sake of godliness or discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. How is a prospective elder doing in showing discipline in the spiritual uh, life? Can he encourage others to be disciplined? And is he an example for others of spiritual discipline in his own walk? Does he understand the importance of such spiritual disciplines? What about discipline in other areas of life, in his commitments? Is he so scattered that he overcommits and underdelivers? Does he follow through? A person, a person who is scattered, a person who is superficial, who is enslaved to his own impulses, who does not follow through on his commitments, will struggle to be a good overseer for God's church. Friends, we've looked at these six qualifications that Paul gives to Titus. These qualifications challenge us to consider that being an elder is not simply about what a person does not do, but also a per- what a person is able to visibly manifest as in terms of positive characteristics. We looked at these six positive qualifications hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Friends, these qualifications or this list, they are qualifications for elders, but they are a wonderful, wonderful guidepost for all of us to pursue. For all of us as Christians, men and women. Friends, these qualifications um, can be a wonderful um, grid for a number of decisions in our lives. Um, Let me speak to young ladies who are not married. If you pray for a husband, pray for a husband who has these qualifications. Pray for a husband who's pursuing these qualifications. If you are married, pray for your husband that he would pursue these qualifications. These are wonderful qualifications and pray for these one by one, specifically. Pray through this list of, of, of questions that we work through today. Pray that your husband might grow in these. Uh, husbands, pray these same qualifications for your wives. If you are a man, pray that God would help you grow in each of these areas. Feel free to ask another Christian to evaluate you in these areas, to give you feedback on how visible are these traits, these qualifications in your life. Friends, I have been praying to the Lord for a number of years that the Lord would give our congregation men who pursue this kind of living. So at the right time, when our church is ready to to have a plurality of elders, our church might be able to affirm them because these qualifications are part of of so many of our men in our congregation. Friends, by God's grace, next week, we will look at another qualification that is uniquely, uniquely for elders. But the qualifications we looked at today are for all of us. May all of us grow in this kind of living so that God's name, the people who are associated with God's name, might display his glory and God's name would be glorified through us. Would you pray with me? Our God and Savior, we praise you for what you have revealed to us about your people about how they should be governed, how they should be led, how they should be shepherded, 
and who should do it. Father, we pray that all of us in our own lives, we would pursue these qualifications that we mentioned today from your word. Father, we pray that you would raise up men among us who would be zealous for it. We pray that you would raise among us families, ladies, young people and old who would pursue these qualifications and would pursue these traits. We pray that we would be a people who would exemplify you by the lives of those who lead us. We pray that you would be exalted among us and help us to grow in these qualifications. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.